On this week's episode, we ruin our sweet tooths with Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Is there an Oompa Loompa union? What does Charlie Bucket's house smell like? And could Augustus really have drunk it all? Find out now you're listening to 24 Flames Per Second. Everybody, welcome to another episode. 24 Flames Per Second is the podcast that roasts the films we love the most. Um, and as always, I'm your host, Robert Bohorkas. Everybody, welcome to the show. And uh, I hope you've got a sweet tooth, and I hope you're ready to get a cavity in it and have it removed, because this week we're talking about Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, uh, the one from the 70s, the Gene Wilder one, not the Johnny Depp one, um, for those wondering, curious, because that one's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Um, but yeah, so we are, we're taking a trip back to the 70s this week, um, is another in our kind of little series we got going here on food movies, um, and so, you know, desserts of food too, so here we go into the um, uh, imagination of our, a trip into our imagination, I forget how, I've can't remember the song lyrics right now. It's fine. Um, <clears throat> but, yeah, everyone, welcome. Um, and so we're into May. So let me see what's going on here in May. Um, we'll, uh, we'll we'll talk about Patreon later. Um, there's nothing too exciting. There's a drink along from last week. But you already knew that um, over on our Patreon. Um, and so, yeah, we'll... Uh, I think we just want to get into it this week. We've got a lot of fun stuff to talk about, mainly sugar and candy related. Um, and um, yeah, everybody, it's uh, it's good to good. thanks for listening. And so let's uh, let's start. I don't have a co-host this week, so I am my own Oompa Loompa. Um, and so yeah, um, let's see. Did I watch the movie this week? Yes, I did. And I actually had recently watched it anyways a few um, weeks ago. I was testing out some LEDs on the back of my TV. Um, and it, that, that, that scene in the tunnel does wonders for flashing colors on my walls. Um, and so, yeah, I did watch it recently and I know some stuff about this movie. Um, so let me, um, let me pull up my notes here really quick. Um, and some of this is like maybe all common knowledge, but I'll reiterate it here just for the fun of the fun of reiterating it. Um, but yeah, this movie came out in uh, 1971, directed by Mel Stewart. Um, and uh, I noticed this, which I don't think I had seen this before watching it, just because I was ha- looking out for things. But in the opening credits, um, there's a Quaker Oats share- shares the copyright to the movie uh, because they were making a the movie was mainly to promote this new Quaker Oats Wonka bar that they're putting out. And that's the one that all the golden tickets come in. Um, and so, yeah, let's see what else, um, which is which is kind of fun. Oats, Quaker Oats being in the movie making business um, and in casting the 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 titular Willy Wonka, um, like kind of everybody wanted this role, um, including all of Monty Python um, and then some other names. We have Fred Astaire in the mix. Peter Sellers was begging Roald Dahl for the role. Um, and then it finally went to uh, Gene Wilder. And he accepted the role in one condition. I think this is kind of this is pretty common knowledge. I think that um, he said when he wants when he first appears on screen, he 
kind of cooked up the entire scene of him coming out with the cane and tripping and falling and kind of the beats um, are exactly um, as he requested that, you know, the crowd gets quiet and then he gets back up and he doesn't have the cane and um, he, everyone claps for him and it was all to set up this, like, nobody knows if Willy Wonka's lying or telling the truth. Um, and so, yeah, just kind of that's one that specifically created that moment by Gene Wilder and um, and the re- and the rest is history. Um, and then other other kind of casting things. Um, Sammy Davis Jr. wanted to play the candy store owner, but the director didn't want too big of a star in the movie. Um, and so <laughs> he uh, ended up going on to um, record the song The Candyman anyways, and it was his only number one hit. And uh, it was on the on the top the billboard top 100 for a while um and yeah let's see what else they shot it in germany uh we know we see this through the wonka vader um and yeah Roald Dahl also not a huge fan of the finished movie um so unfortunately we don't have him on the show this week but we've got a bunch of other good folks and so i think yeah everybody we can um we can dive into our, uh, our panels. We can get everybody introduced. Um, I'll hand out the golden tickets, I suppose. Um, and so we will start with um, our roasters, as always. First up, we've got theater educator, Disney expert, and Zac Efron fan. I got those backwards. Strike that. Reverse it. Um, you can find her on social media talking board games at Board, board Games and talking Disney villains at The Villainous Pod. Alex Garamoni. I want a bean feast and a squirrel and a fresh podcast. In this one, she wants the golden goose. Well, I <laughs> forgot. <laughs> well, shit. I mixed them up. You know what? I mixed them up. Uh, so that's it. That's my time for the week, guys. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> that's fine. She wanted a squirrel in the book. Um, I want lots of things, you know? I mean, that's... That could have just been me. You don't know that was that reference. That's me. That's just where I'm at today. Hi. Very good. Um, Hello. Thanks for being here. Great to have you. Um, And another roaster here. Uh, We got it. He's a writer. He's a teacher. He's a Godzilla expert. You can find him on Instagram at Possess Ian. Ian Coleman. Robert, Robert, Robert. Hello. Hi. How's it going? (laughs) Pretty good. I'm uh, excited as a... Uh, 25 year type 1 diabetic I'm really excited to bring my perspective to this movie uh, the movie that wants me dead the, <laughs> the movie yeah. that raises my blood sugar with every every shot of chocolate born a, born a roaster you'll, you'll die a roaster yeah oh definitely <laughs> Um, well very good it's great to, great to have you here um, roasting uh, and fulfilling your life's purpose with us um <laughs> That's that's not why you're you're here for more than that, um, and uh, well, very good. Those are roasters, and on the defense this week, Seattle Cinephile. You can find her on Instagram at Zandra C thirty three Alexandra Calero. Hello, hello. How's it going? Good. I'm uh, excited to be here. Uh, it's been a while since I've had to do movie in a minute, so I'm uh, <laughs> all in my head about that already. <laughs> nice. Um, well, yeah. Well, you said it. Well. Um, it's great to have you here, and we'll start with the Thank first you. thing. We always start with which is movie in a minute. Um, and so, yeah, give us the full plot synopsis of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Spoilers and all. 
And we'll give you 60 seconds and a three count. Um, since five seconds ago, are you ready? Uh, oh, sh I guess. <laughs> ready as I'll ever be. All right. Well, very good. Um, well, yeah, here we go. In three, two, one, go. Okay. Charlie lives with his mom and his four grandparents, and they're very, very poor. They hear that Willy Wonka, the local candy maker, is going to have a contest where he gives out five golden tickets to... Uh, people to uh, win a tour of the factory and a lifetime supply of chocolate. Uh, and we see that Charlie really, really wants to win this, but the tickets keep going to other kids. And then the, he thinks the fifth ticket's been found. He finds money. He buys a chocolate bar just as a treat for himself. And it turns out he has the fifth ticket. So he takes his grandpa Joe with him to go on this tour. And uh, he gets to go this tour, meet Wonka, who is eccentric to say the least. And the other four kids that are there as well, um, winners, and they slowly, one by one, get picked off uh, in Wonka's horror factory <laughs> uh, due to their own arrogance and greed. Um, and then at the very end, Charlie has managed to survive, but gets disqualified because he also and broke the rules. <laughs> you're out of time. He had broken the rules. You're correct. Um but we don't get the we don't get the prestige quite yet. Um, yeah, so there's a scene where uh, uh, Grandpa Joe and Charlie drink some fizzy lifting drinks, fly up, get their grimy mitts all over the ceiling, which now has to be washed, um, which is a, a break in the rules. Um, and so Wonka says, "Get out." Um, and Charlie does the right thing, having a heart of gold and gives him his uh, everlasting gobstopper back, which um, was all a grand test to kind of, uh, I guess, suss out who are the trustworthy children, um, since there was a Slugworth actor who is a rival candy maker, um, you know, will we'll pay for the formula, the secret formula to the... Um, Everlasting Gobstopper, and so Charlie gave it away. He passes the test, um, and Wonka says, you've won. You're going to inherit the factory. Um, I'm going to teach you how to do the whole thing, and everyone can come live here, and your problems are all over forever. Um, and then they take a ride in this elevator, the Wonkavator, that goes every direction you could possibly think of. Um, they take it up, um, and it flies out the ceiling, and they fly over the town, and credits roll. It's a happy ending for everybody. So, um, except for, I guess, the kids. Um, and, yeah. So, yeah, that's um, that's Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Pretty good. You're almost there. You're so almost close. There. So close. Yeah. Um, and so, very good. Um, so, we are going to take um, a little break. When we come back, everybody, uh, we will um, get your opening statements. Alexander, why are you here defending Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory? Everybody, we will be right back. And we're back, everyone. Welcome back to our Chocolate Factory. Willie Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Um, just before the break, um, I guess Alexandra, you know, kind of where we left off, you went up into the f fan from the fizzy lifting drinks. Yep. Um, so didn't quite make it to the end of that uh, factory tour. Um, but uh, but yeah, let's um, let's let's move on. Let's talk, tell us about. Um, let's get your opening statements. Why you're here defending Willie Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. I think the number one reason is Gene Wilder. I mean, I think that he is the reason the movie works. I think it's just it 
it all kind of rides on him. You know, um, he's brilliant. He's funny. He's crazy. He's weird. He's kind of everything you'd expect from the chocolate maker. Um, but also just, I think it's a fun kind of fantasy, you know, child uh, geared wish fulfillment story. I mean, who doesn't want somebody to go, I'm going to give you a chocolate factory. You know, even if you're not going to eat all the chocolate, you're going to like make a shit ton of money selling chocolate. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah. So I think roasters, places we can start would either be with Willy Wonka himself or kind of the um, that that plot of the movie, the 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 winning child receives a lifetime supply of chocolate in the form of running this chocolate factory. I don't know which which sounds sweeter. Uh, I'll 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 jump onto the basic premise of the movie, which this most recent rewatch I um, sort of saw it from a new angle, and I found it to be incredibly manipulative and exploitative in like not a good way, especially given that like the whole premise of this plot that that Willy Wonka hatches is to like find an impressionable child who he can just like fill his head with like his own ideas and especially and essentially like pick as a successor to run his business exactly as he would without like any agency of his own. Like it just seems really like, yeah, manipulative to yeah take this bright eyed, starry eyed young boy who idolizes him and essentially just like, you know, pick him as a replacement to run the factory as he would. It's, it, it feels emotionally manipulative. It feels um, a little bit creepy and it just really rubbed me the wrong way. Well, I, I, you know, I hear what you're saying, but I don't know with Wonka specifically saying, I'm going to pick somebody who's going to run it the way I want to run it versus the way they want to run it was necessarily like, oh, I'm going to indoctrinate you into exactly my way of thinking so much as he is childlike at heart. And so he doesn't want an adult to take over. He wants somebody who um, will continue to kind of believe in magic and, you know, the magic of, you know, candy making and the fun and joy of candy making and not making it necessarily uh, just about the bottom line. Um, and so I think that's what he meant or like that's the way I interpret the idea of i want a child to take over it's not about indoctrination it's about continuing his vision um whereas an adult will just be like no no i'm going to do it because i know better i have business you know acumen or whatever it is a kid's just going to kind of dive right into like let's just keep doing this and having fun you know what an adult would do in the factory though is they would probably know how to i don't know deal with taxes or like invoices charlie bucket first of all <laughs> bucket boy himself does not seem to be the smartest or the sharpest and you're telling me that we're handing over a multi-million dollar factory business to some dumbass middle schooler like what sense does this make? Sure, be wild and free and young at heart, but also be logical because this is a business. And if we're in the business world of this sort of magical, you know, you can have magic, but you also better have some sense. And it makes no sense <laughs> why this man would randomly invite children to his factory with the intention of, of finding one. Like and that makes no sense to me. 
you also hear that horror story all the time of like lottery winners who have never really, you know, had much, much to their name their whole lives. And they win all this money and they like don't know how to manage it well because they've never like had the opportunity to build up the skills. Like I really can't see him thriving in this setting that he's put into at the end. Well, I don't think that he's like giving them, you know, giving Charlie and his family the keys to the kingdom, so to speak, and walking away from this, you know, 11 or 12 year old. It's like, you know, I get the impression with the way it ended. It was like, I'm going to teach you how to do all of the other stuff involved in this. You (laughs) will, um, you'll still have all the joy and everything. And you'll tell me what kids want to eat. You'll be excited about candy and we'll come up with all these fun ideas. Um, you know, I think about like the scene when they're in the inventing room and he's putting shoes and stuff to give it a kick or a coat because it's too cold. I mean, like a kid's going to buy into that. An adult is not. Um, so I don't I don't think that there's any expectation that Charlie's going to have to know all of the actual like money, business side taxes, you know, workers comp, anything like that you know, <laughs> involved in this. I think it's more like just, you know, I'll teach you the ropes. And when I die or when I'm done you'll know what you're doing. Did Charlie ever even say he wanted a chocolate factory? Because that seems like a lot of responsibility to just heap on this kid. In fact, uh, you know, going back to what Ian said about manipulation, he finds a really poor kid without a lot of options and says, hey, here's this guaranteed career. I just need your service in order for it to happen. This feels exploitative to me. And I th- uh, listen, you suspect and you on notice, Wonka. I see you. I also get the impression that Charlie doesn't even particularly like love Wonka bars in the way that a lot of the population seems to. Like it in the scenes where he buys it, like he never really like has the same fervor for like the Wonka chocolate that the, you know even like the adults are feel a lot more invested in the chocolate itself than he does. Like it, it only just kind of like he, he's only really buying them. It seems like for the opportunity to win the golden ticket and not because he really seems to love candy or chocolate that much. I think that, you know, maybe his financial circumstances, his life circumstances, if he's not having access to chocolate the same way, um, you know, there's not a level of greed involved in it, but that doesn't mean that he doesn't like it. Uh, I know that, you know, there is this the scene where the teacher is asking about what percentage of a thousand bars did you open? And Charlie goes, oh, well, I don't really like chocolate. That doesn't necessarily, you know, his comment isn't necessarily accurate that he doesn't like chocolate. Maybe he's just covering himself because he didn't have the money to go buy hundreds of bars. Um, and I think... You know, Charlie, I think the whole thing about the chocolate for him is it's maybe it's just doesn't hold the same value simply because it's not something he has access to every day. But he clearly wanted a lifetime supply of chocolate because he didn't just hand the golden ticket over to somebody or say, eh, you know, I'm not going to participate in this contest. I think he did see value in it because it was going to finally put him on the same level in some way with his classmates who have access to this luxury item that he doesn't. Yeah. And that's, that, that's actually kind of more how I saw it. It was less about like having candy itself. And it was more of like a symbol for getting to have what life just denied him. Like it really just doesn't really seem as though he values the, you know, idea of making candy or like, you know, giving candy to people or like even inventing things. Like he really doesn't seem to have 
much ambition beyond like provide a better life for his family and you know like have a sense of opportunity like both of which like having the chocolate factory fulfills those needs and then some it's just piling on this whole extra you know responsibility and expectation that he really doesn't ever express a need for at all it's almost like it didn't even have to be a candy factory you know if it was Willy Wonka's like you open your chuck roast and if you find a golden ticket you get to come to a tour of the meatpacking plant <laughs> like would Charlie Bucket just be like, oh, dope. We got to get up in there. I'm going to make me some meat sticks. <laughs> like, Quite possibly because, you know, maybe the protein has even more value. I mean, he was tired of the cabbage water soup. Um, but I think, I mean, I don't know. I think the whole candy factory side of it is just quite simply the selling this product of the book and the movie to an audience. Right. You know, Roald Dahl's not going to write a book in the beginning about like a guy who wins, you know, or a kid who wins uh, being in charge of a toilet paper factory because kids aren't going <laughs> to read that book. They're not going to care. I'd love to shift. Let's go in the factory. You know, I want to talk. <laughs> I want to talk about the room where everything is eatable, edible. I, I, I hate it. And I know my childlike wonder <laughs> is supposed to be like, wow, amazing. All I can think of in the world that we live in now, but also I felt like this when I was younger, was like they're walking in there off the dirty ass streets, like in their street clothes and their little freaking Chuck, like their little Chucks, their little <laughs> shoes that have been walking through sewers and alleys and like wherever Mike TV lives, like all of that stuff Marble is now falls. all over. Okay. Well, I don't trust him. So <laughs> I think that everything that they're touching is so dirty. And I'm just like, y'all are nasty little freaks. Like why did Wonka just let people go loose? And I get it's to prove a point, but like, I'm a consumer. I don't care about the moralistic journey. I care that my chocolate doesn't have gloop goop in it, you know? Like, <laughs> gloop, I don't need this. Gloop goop! <laughs> Bite into a chocolate bar and just, like, find a tooth. Oh, God. Yeah. That's the fear. <laughs> Uh, you know, I I honestly don't know that I could defend that. You know, it does it does seem legitimately like concerning to run a factory and just let you know a kid stick his hand in the chocolate river. Um, to be fair, I mean, he did say he's contaminating it. Make him stop. Right. Exactly. Being in the you chocolate. Know, the chocolate, I mean, the chocolate river is theoretically something he shouldn't be touching, whereas all the other stuff is maybe just, maybe it's supposed to be a tasting room. That's the thing. It's like, maybe it's a tasting room that when the factory was open and accessible to the general public, because as Grandpa Joe explains, he shut the factory down to the public at some point uh, because he was concerned about proprietary information. I mean, maybe that was the tasting room. And the idea was that, okay, you got to see this chocolate river. Don't touch the chocolate river. But everything else, you're welcome to sample. But then why take them in this big old room where he says everything is edible in here, but here's my terms and conditions. Also, I didn't see one of them damn kids sign an NDA. They owed him nothing. They owed him nothing. They signed that giant contract on the wall at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. 
uh, that have all of that fine print. There's probably an NDA in there. I mean, there's all that fine print at the bottom that you could see. Where was their legal counsel? (laughs) You suspect, Wonka, and you're on notice. Yeah, I mean, and I think that that moment with, like, Augustus and the Chocolate River is also the moment where, like, I kind of stopped, you know, seeing Wonka as this aspirational figure who these children should look up to like that that's the point where like he's pretty aware probably of this kid is about to fall on the chocolate river there is a possible human death toll of you know him having an accident there and he makes no attempt to like intervene or like even show the least bit of concern for human life and I think that kind of ties into my bigger thesis on like Willy Wonka as like I, I really just find him not a good person at all. Like he seems less of like a guy who enjoys making things like people. There's a really, there's a big disconnect between how people talk about him as like this guy who loves to make things because he, you know, just has like such a childlike wonder in his heart and he wants to fill the world with sunshine and love. And the way that he comes across when we actually meet him is like less like that. And he's more like this Dr. Moreau figure who like locks himself up in his own private chamber. And he just like creates these things with no real consideration of like the impact of them or like really doesn't seem to care that much about making people happy at all. It's more to amuse himself and like satisfy his own, you know, desire to create something interesting, like the exploding chocolate. There's no better demonstrator of that than that whole idea of like giving a kid candy and it like blowing their teeth up. I mean, I think that, you know, within some of that is like maybe you know yeah okay maybe some of it is like really questionable moral behavior um you know the thing is i think about that as like we don't know who wonka was before he shut himself off to the world and so i feel like there's a lot of stuff that we're told at the beginning by grandpa joe and that is kind of implied of who he is or who he was before he got put in a position by other you know, rival chocolate people that he had to shut himself off to the world and kind of behave in this kind of more obscure or weird or or eccentric or whatever it is um, thing, because he has to protect what is generally accepted within the world of the, the um, story that his chocolate is the best chocolate. And so he's just trying to protect his investment, his life's work, all of that. Um, I don't know that I totally see it as like a, you know, Island of Dr. Moreau situation other than, you know, yeah, he's like, I'm doing this for me. But, you know, that doesn't mean that there can't still be enjoyment for other people because the kids are still eating his chocolate. His chocolate is still flying off the shelves. You know, people still buy it. (laughs) I guess my question is, like, why does Willy Wonka get to be the moral police then for these kids? Like, why is he, first of all, they're children. You know, you ever met a, a 12 to 15 year old? They suck. And I've said that on this podcast before. And I work with children and they suck. And they like, they're still fit. And it's because they're figuring it out and their lobes, all those brain wrinkles ain't fully developed yet. But like, so why is he being so hard on kids? 
you you gave them the key to a magical realm of pure imagination and then as soon as they start imagining you're like and now my loompas will take you away and we'll put you in an incinerator and we're gonna take you to the squeezing room and we're gonna make you really like he's so cruel to these children as an adult man who invited them in, he chooses to torture and torment them. You know, like there is no reason that he should be the one who decides, oh, um, I need to teach these kids lessons about X, Y, or Z. Like what gives you the right, Mr. Wonka? I'm perfectly fine. And if somebody's going to raise their kid to be an asshole, (sighs) that's not your job. That's not your job. Uh, oh go ahead yeah and it's it 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 really seems like for most of the cases of these kids like it's you know like it's it's always the like ultimately it's always the parents fault it's the ways that they were raised but like most of the punishment seems to be like inflicted on the kids and like the parents really don't seem to learn anything or he doesn't like you know kind of take these lessons and like reflect them back on the parents at all it's all about punishing the kid like all the body horror always goes to these poor children really are just victims of yeah poor parenting or being spoiled or yeah like there's all this child psychology terminology i could use but yeah like essentially none of what what is happening to these kids is really their fault well, I would, you know, that's kind of what I was going to touch on, though, is like that at that point, that's the commentary from uh, Roald Dahl about the role of a parent in a child's life. I mean, if you think about the real world, you know, and parents who raised shitty children, what's going to happen? You raise a shitty child, the child's going to bear the consequences of your shitty parenting. And we're seeing that reflected in the movie is, you know, you've got somebody like Veruca who has never been told no in her life. And she's going to pay the price for the fact that her parents didn't parent, you know, the same thing with Augustus and um, Mike and Violet, like all of them, the, the ideas is like also reflective of what role the parent plays in their lives. And this is why Charlie is successful, whether or not his frontal lobe is fully developed or, you know, he's just like, you know, Yes, he's still a kid. He's still learning. But clearly there was a, a good influence in his life for him to know the difference between right and wrong, which even shitty 12 year olds can know the difference between right and wrong. I think the fizzy lifting drink scene really kind of muddies that water. And I've, I've always hated that scene. And that wasn't in the book. And I think that really like muddies the intended characterization that Road Doll put in the book is like, you know, Charlie is the one child who you know, had, you know, it's like deprived of all of these things. Like he was raised on pure love. And because of that, he made the right decisions. But then he essentially succumbs to in the the film adaptation, the exact same thing that gets the other kids, you know, like, you know, PG killed. And he (laughs) does something he's not supposed to. He takes the fizzy lifting drinks, you know, because he can get away with it, which is, you know, a very childlike, a immature 12 year old behavior but like essentially what gets him out of it isn't his his moral character or anything special about him it was just that he stumbled on the solution to that by accident and he figured out to burp and he was just more clever than them and there's really it really just i really hate that scene because it messes up the message well i'm you know i think the thing, the difference between that scene and all of the other scenes where the kids are, you know, punished or whatever it is, 
is the kids make the decision to do that thing. He was influenced by Grandpa Joe, and that's a commentary on Grandpa Joe and not on Charlie's decision-making. And when it came time for him to be ultimately punished by Wonka by saying, you have been disqualified from this contest because I know that you, you broke the rules, Charlie accepted the fact that he broke the rules. And, you know, Grandpa Joe was like, fine, we'll give the everlasting gobstopper to Slughorn. And Charlie turned around and said, I know the right thing to do. If I broke the rules, I bear the consequences of those. I'm going to give you the, the gobstopper back and I'm going to walk away from this. I still had a great time in your factory. <laughs> There's a lot more murder than I thought there would be, but like pretty chill day overall. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot more body horror too. Like that, that, that kid should be traumatized. He just saw like a little girl, like <laughs> blow up. She like into a blueberry. Yeah. Can we talk? Girl, into a blueberry. He saw like, there's, there's really no indication based on what he saw that these children would have even made it out alive. Like, Veruca could have been incinerated for all he knew. There was a 50-50. He saw Mike TV float up in, like, a million pieces above his head. He saw, like, Augustus drown inside a pipe. Like, it's, yeah, he should be traumatized. Can we talk about, you know, after these huge traumatic events that an Oompa Loompa squad comes out and is like, it's time for our song. <laughs> Hit the speakers, Willie. Like, how much of their day is spent choreographing when they should be <laughs> minding the factory? And also, is that in their contracts? Are they being compensated fairly for that? Because from what I can tell, uh, we've got corporate Willy Wonka up here with the other fat cats. He's hanging out with Bezos. He's hanging out with <laughs> Gates. All of them are together like smoking chocolate cigars and drinking sugar brandy while their <laughs> workers are peeing in the chocolate river because they don't get bathroom breaks. Like, what's up with that? What's up with that? Let's talk about how Wonka runs a capitalist-driven evil empire. Not just that, but it's the whole, like, white man's burden thing, too, of, like, it's my responsibility to take these, you know, natives of this. Yes, this sir. And I need to civilize them and I, I need to, you know, protect them from, you know, protect them from themselves. Vermicious canids. Yeah. I, I'm not even going to attempt to defend that. <laughs> like, to be perfectly honest, there are some, definitely some questionable things within the, that, you know, that uh, I know better attitude of I'm going to take an entire population of people from their home country and turn them into my employees. There's like, I agree. There's no way to defend that decision. No. Um, the only attempt I would make at it and really shittily do it is, you know, the arrogance of Roald Dahl in, you know, what, like, I've never read the book, so I don't know how much of that kind of stuff is carry over into the movie, but it's just that I would say is probably just the arrogance of Roald Dahl in creating the story and then the arrogance of the writers carrying that over into the movie. I guess then to bring it out to the world of the books versus movie, so Roald Dahl was involved um, very heavily in like writing the film and, and in, in the film itself. And then at the end, they brought in someone else who added the musical numbers, who added in uh, extra scenes and who changed the ending. And because of those changes, Roald Dahl wrote off the film, you know, as Rob kind of touched on earlier. But something that I was reading earlier was that 
Roald Dahl's wife was talking about why does Hollywood not trust children and that they accepted the ending of the book. Why did they have to change it for the film? Why don't they believe that children will like it just the same as it was in the book as it was in the film? And that was a huge problem. So the the film itself, it's hard because the film doesn't represent the book, but it also, you know, on its own doesn't have that strong message. You know, is Roald Dahl communicating his disapproval of parents or are we supposed to say well he we can't listen to him because he's the guy who is like also i'm going to take my natives and make them do songs and dance (laughs) and to finish this argument their outfits are atrocious like those are not safe Uh, once again i feel like one of those little buttons on their little outfits could pop off in any candy bar you could see i i just have a lot of questions about why we let this world exist and we're all just like, yeah, I guess, I guess this is the world and, and it's okay. Well, that's you know? traditional Oompa Loompa garb. So you can walk those comments right back. I think I'm just kidding. I, I withdraw the rest <laughs> remains. Really like a lot of the production design didn't hold up for me on this viewing. Like the, the movie was made for a budget of 2 million, which was not a lot of movie, even in like the 1970s. And you can, you can really see, the, like not just like the datedness of the effects, but like a lot of these factories, which are rooms, which are supposed to like represent, you know, this like, you know, vivid fantasy world of wonder and imagination is just like, you know, these like really shitty looking rooms with these like, you know, factory machines on them and like the wallpaper and even the, the, the room of, of, of like pure imagination, like all of that looks fake in, in a way that really just takes me out of it. Like, I don't feel awe when, like, you know, you get to the reveal of that set. It's just like, oh, here's a movie set. Here's some, you know, rubber inflatable lollipops. I think, you know, for for a budget of, you know, two million, I think you do the best you can. And I think the it feels like trying to present a reasonably accurate representation of what a factory would look like even in a fantastical world of like okay this room is edible and this is where we invent things and this is this you know acid trip tunnel (laughs) um so i you know it's like i i think that there's a lot that is left to be desired sure in the production design but i think that um it it still feels like a fantastical place because ultimately, you know, going through a candy factory would be a fantastical place to a kid. Uh, whether you're in the factory as one of the five, you know, golden ticket winners or as one of the kids sitting in the audience getting to see it. Hmm. I think we've about reached time to unmask. So um we can we can leave it on that point um and uh yeah let's talk about let's talk about how we really feel um and alexandra we'll start with you i'm definitely a fan of this movie um it's probably been about 10 years since i've seen it so i would say it doesn't necessarily hold up to my remembrance or the nostalgia surrounding it um uh, like ian you were saying uh there's a lot to be desired in the production design is like i forgot how boring those rooms look after that first one where you're like oh yeah okay i don't i don't care about the factory anymore um but like i said in my opening statement i mean the reason to watch this for me is is gene wilder i you know i will always come back to it because of him yeah 
Uh, Alex. Um, I really do like this movie. <laughs> uh, I think for me, it's very similar. It's Gene Wilder's performance and honestly, the music, um, which I know that Roald Dahl did not like, I think is so special. Um, pure imagination and uh, there's no knowing where we're going. Those songs both to me conjure so much nostalgia and so much of like being a child. Like it still makes my heart beat fast when they're going through and it's really weird and psychedelic and freaky. Like that still makes my heart pound. And when they walk in the room of pure imagination, it's still kind of, I get a little verklempt, you know, it's, (laughs) there's something really, that reminds me of being a child when I watch this movie. Um, yeah. So I, I enjoy it. Nice. Ian? Um, you know, I think, like, regardless of how good or not this movie ultimately is, like, I don't really think it matters at this point because, like, it's the kind of movie that just worms its way into your soul. Like, I find myself out of nowhere just like humming the songs and it's been a solid over a decade since i last watched this movie and i still will you know like like when one of my dogs is looking outside like i'll just sing like i want the squirrel (laughs) i want the whole squirrel (laughs) or even just like the yeah i just like hum the pure imagination song for no reason at all and i think it's just because this movie is one of those that just like no individual element of it is really that remarkable or sophisticated, but the way that it all comes together is really not something that can be explained in words. I really do think it's just one of those really rare pieces of like magic movie making. And I think that, you know, irrespective of how well certain elements do or don't hold up, I think the the way everything comes together is just like really impossible to quantify and impossible to reproduce. And uh, yeah, fuck the Tim Burton movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I uh, I love this movie. Uh, it was one of our movies that was on in heavy rotation when I was growing up. I still have our family VHS copy of it um, that I remember this from watching it when I was little, but um, it, ha- it still has the like real, change the real spots in there and i remember not the cigarette burns yes yes exactly yeah Yeah. um and i remember like not understanding what those were when i was watching this as a kid obviously i was like why did it flash this black spot in the corner um it's like right when they go in the factory is one of the real changes um but uh but but yeah i mean i it's so incredibly nostalgic for me and i think that like I remember being, obviously, like, as a kid, you're kind of bored the first half of the movie setting up getting into the factory. But as an adult, the, like, all the asides, the little, the little news reports, the, the guy fighting with the computer, the, like, the, the cop hostage scene with the lady, um, like, all of those scenes <laughs> are so fucking funny now. Like, yeah, she's like, what? I'll give anything to have my husband back. And he's like, he wants you. He wants your Wonka bars. And she's like has to think about it (laughs) how how long do i have to make a decision yeah yeah it's so funny like the news reports are so good and like the queen showing up at the option for the last box in the uk (laughs) (laughs) or even like from a screenwriting perspective like if you want to talk about earning a moment like that golden ticket scene where charlie ultimately like finds it after failing twice and getting his heart just utterly crushed is just a perfect demonstration of that yeah yeah, where it's like, mm-hmm. and he didn't even like, he bought a different candy first and then was like, yeah. you know what? No, I'll take another of the other ones. 
And like, it's just, it's so, it feels low stakes. And all of a sudden it's like, everything is happening. Like, I don't know. It's, I, th- I think it's, I remember being forgiving of the production design as a kid and still now, like, I don't care. It looks, I don't care what it yeah. looks like anymore. Like the fantasy of it, I think fills in those gaps. Like, yeah. And like you, it, you, you believe, you believe in the world. You don't question it. Yeah. And, and I think that they do a good job building out the world to make you do that. Like yeah, the way the, sure. the characterization is, is like, is full. Like every character feels like a real person. Um, and makes sense like that like um sam beauregard of course violet beauregard is his daughter like um (laughs) mr salt of course he has a daughter like veruca like all of that um and so yeah no this is like this is like one of my all-time favorites i watch it probably probably once a year i was saying before we started recording um it's it's just fucking fun it's a good movie um and so, yeah, everybody, um, that's going to do it. It's going to do it for this episode, our Willy Wonka episode. Um, hope you enjoyed your dessert. Um, and, uh, yeah, we're going to we're gonna keep talking um, for Extended Play, which is our post-show. That's just for our Patreon subscribers. So if you want to get in on that and listen to more, uh, you can head to patreon.com slash 24flamespod. Um, and there's a whole bunch of other stuff up there, too. Drink-alongs. Um, there's a new one this month. Um, and, and our hot takes and we'll be ramping up more content too as we move into season five. Um, I've got, I've got plans for that. Um, so, so stay tuned for more. Um, and, uh, yeah, let's see. Um, if you got thoughts on Willy Wonka, um, you can email us at 24 flamespod at gmail.com. You can, uh, find us on social media at 24 flamespod wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, we love we love seeing feedback. Go and leave a rating and review. Um, subscribe so you can get more episodes when they come out. Um, and yeah, whether that's you know good pods, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever, um, hit us up um, so we can make the show better and more people can find the show. Um, especially as we're getting closer to season five, it's a very exciting milestone to be crossing. Um, and uh, yeah, let me see. Just speaking of subscribing, I want to make sure I tell you what's coming next week. Um, and aha, yes, um, a different kind of food's coming next week. Uh, we're doing Sweeney Todd the Bar- Demon Barber of Fleet Street. So hope you're hungry uh, for human meat. Um, and so, uh, yeah, everybody, this episode of 24 Flames Per Second was produced and hosted by me, Robert Bohorkas. Our panels this week um, were Alexander Calero on the defense, the roasters, Alex Garamoni and Ian Coleman. Our show music is composed and performed by Rob Joins and Will Paulson. And our network and co-op, Partyfish Media, is produced by Quasi Phillips, Will Paulson, and me. Um, and so, yeah, everybody, I hope we come back to kind of continue in this food series we're doing um, with Sweeney Todd. And um, we look forward to uh, just keeping the train rolling towards the end of season four here. Um, it's very exciting. Um, and we uh, thank you all for listening and thanks you all for, for joining us here. And we will uh, catch you next week, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Fish media. 
Partyfish Media acknowledges that it operates and records on indigenous Duwamish and Puget Sound Coast Salish land that is still home to the Duwamish tribe. This land is stolen in violation of the Point Elliott Treaty of 1855. We are committed to uplifting the name of these lands and community members from these nations who reside alongside us. For more information on this land, its people, or ways you can help, visit duwamishtribe.org or realrentduwamish.org.